0: Section 11 of The Theory of the Leisure Class This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion The Theory of the Leisure Class by Thorsten Veblen Chapter 6 Pecuniary Canons of Taste the caution has already been repeated more than once that while the regulating norm of consumption is in large part the requirement of conspicuous waste it must not be understood that the motive on which the consumer acts in any given case is this principle in its bold unsophisticated form ordinarily his motive is a wish to conform to established usage to avoid unfavourable notice and comment to live up to the accepted canons of decency in the kind amount and grade of goods consumed, as well as in the decorous employment of his time and effort. In the common one of cases, this sense of prescriptive usage is present in the motives of the consumer and exerts a direct constraining force, especially as regards consumption carried on under the eyes of observers. But a considerable element of prescriptive expensiveness is observable also in consumption that does not in any appreciable degree become known to outsiders as for instance articles of underclothing some articles of food kitchen utensils and other household apparatus designed for service than for evidence in all such useful articles a close scrutiny will discover certain features which add to the cost and enhance the commercial value of the goods in question but do not proportionately increase the serviceability of these articles for the material purposes which alone they ostensibly are designed to serve. Under the selective surveillance of the law of conspicuous waste, there grows up a code of accredited canons of consumption, the effect of which is to hold the consumer up to a standard of expensiveness and wastefulness in his consumption of goods and in his employment of time and effort. The growth of prescriptive usage has an immediate effect upon economic life but it also has an indirect and remoter effect upon conduct in other respects as well. Habits of thought with respect to the expression of life in any given direction unavoidably affect the habitual view of what is good and right in life in other directions also. In the organic complex of habits of thought which make up the substance of an individual's conscious life, the economic interest does not lie isolated and distinct from all other interests. Something, for instance, has already been said of its relation to the canons of reputability. The principle of conspicuous waste guides the formation of habits of thought as to what is honest and reputable in life, and in commodities. In so doing, this principle will traverse other norms of conduct which do not primarily have to do with the code of pecuniary honour, but which have, directly or incidentally, an economic significance of some magnitude. So the canon of honorific waste may, immediately or remotely, influence the sense of duty, the sense of beauty, the sense of utility, the sense of devotional or ritualistic fitness, and the scientific sense of truth. It is scarcely necessary to go into discussion here of the particular points at which, or the particular manner in which, the canon of honorific expenditure habitually traverses the canons of moral conduct. The matter is one which has received large attention and illustration at the hands of those whose office it is to watch and admonish with respect to any departures from the accepted code of morals. In modern communities, where the dominant economic and legal feature of the community's life is the institution of private property, one of the salient features of the code of morals is the sacredness of property. There needs no instance or illustration to gain assent to the proposition that the habit of holding private property inviolate is traversed by the other habit of seeking wealth for the sake of the good repute to be gained to its conspicuous consumption. Most offences against property, especially offences of an appreciable magnitude, come under this head it is also a matter of common notoriety and byword that in offences which result in a large accession of property to the offender he does not ordinarily incur the extreme penalty or the extreme obloquy with which his offences would be visited on the ground of the naive moral code alone the thief or swindler who has gained great wealth by his delinquency has a better chance than the small thief of escaping the rigorous penalty of the law, and some good repute accrues to him from his increased wealth and from his spending the irregularly acquired possessions in a seemly manner. A well-bred expenditure of his booty especially appeals with great effect to persons of a cultivated sense of the proprieties, and goes far to mitigate the sense of moral turpitude with which his dereliction is viewed by them. It may be noted also, and it is more immediately to the point, that we are all inclined to condone an offence against poverty in the case of a man whose motive is the worthy one of providing the means of a decent manner of life for his wife and children if it is added that the wife has been nurtured in the lap of luxury that it is accepted as an additional extenuating circumstance that is to say, we are prone to condone such an offence where its aim is the honorific one of enabling the offender's wife to perform for him such an amount of vicarious consumption of time and substance as is demanded by the standard of pecuniary decency. In such a case, the habit of approving the accustomed degree of conspicuous waste traverses the habit of deprecating violations of ownership, to the extent even of sometimes leaving the award of praise or blame uncertain. This is peculiarly true whether dereliction involves an appreciable predatory or piratical element. This topic need scarcely be pursued further here, but the remark may not be out of place that all that considerable body of morals that clusters about the concept of an inviolable ownership is itself a psychological precipitate of the traditional meritoriousness of wealth, and it should be added that this wealth which is held sacred is valued primarily for the sake of the good repute to be got through its conspicuous consumption. The bearing of pecuniary decency upon the scientific spirit or the quest of knowledge will be taken up in some detail in a separate chapter. Also as regards the sense of devout or ritual merit and adequacy in this connection, little need be said in this place. That topic will also come up incidentally in a later chapter. Still, this use of honorific expenditure has much to say in shaping popular tastes as to what is right and meritorious in sacred matters, and the bearing of the principle of conspicuous waste upon some of the commonplace devout observances and conceits may therefore be pointed out. Obviously, the canon of conspicuous waste is accountable for a great portion of what may be called devout consumption, as, e.g., the consumption of sacred edifices, vestments, and other goods of the same class. Even in those modern cults to whose divinities is imputed a predilection for temples not built with hands, the sacred buildings and the other properties of the cult are constructed and decorated with some view to a reputable degree of wasteful expenditure, and it needs but little either of observation or introspection, and either will serve the term, to assure us that the expensive splendour of the house of worship has an appreciable uplifting and mellowing effect upon the worshipper's frame of mind." It will serve to enforce the same fact if we reflect upon the sense of abject shamefulness with which any evidence of indigence or squalor about the sacred place affects all beholders. The accessory of any devout observance should be pecuniarily above reproach. The requirement is imperative, whatever latitude may be allowed with regard to these accessories in point of aesthetic or other a serviceability. It may also be in place to notice that in all communities, especially in neighbourhoods where the standard of pecuniary decency for dwellings is not high, the local sanctuary is more ornate, more conspicuously wasteful in its architecture and decoration, than the dwelling-houses of the congregation. This is true of nearly all denominations and cults, whether Christian or pagan, but it is true in a peculiar degree of the older and maturer cults. At the same time, the sanctuary commonly contributes little, if anything, to the physical comfort of the members. Indeed, the sacred structure not only serves the physical well-being of the members, to but a slight extent, as compared with their humbler dwelling-houses, but it is felt by all men that a right and enlightened sense of the true, the beautiful, and the good demands that in all expenditure on the sanctuary anything that might serve the comfort of the worshippers should be conspicuously absent. If any element of comfort is admitted in the fittings of the sanctuary, it should be at least scrupulously screened and masked under an ostensible austerity. In the most reputable latter-day houses of worship, where no expense is spared, the principle of austerity is carried to the length of making the fittings of the place a means of mortifying the flesh, especially in appearance. There are few persons of delicate tastes in the matter of devout consumption to whom this austerely wasteful discomfort does not appeal as intrinsically right and good devout consumption is of the nature of vicarious consumption the canon of devout austerity is based on the pecuniary reputability of conspicuously wasteful consumption backed by the principle that vicarious consumption should conspicuously not conduce to the comfort of the vicarious consumer the sanctuary and its fittings have something of this austerity in all the cults in which the saint or divinity to whom the sanctuary pertains is not conceived to be present, and make personal use of the property for the gratification of luxurious tastes imputed to him. The character of the sacred paraphernalia is somewhat different in this respect, in those cults where the habit of life imputed to the divinity more nearly approach those of an earthly patriarchal potentate, where he is conceived to make use of these consumable goods in person. In the latter case, the sanctuary and its fittings take on more of the fashion given to goods destined for the conspicuous consumption of a temporal master or owner. On the other hand, where the sacred apparatus is simply employed in the divinity's service, that is to say, where it is consumed vicariously on his account by his servants, there the sacred properties take the character suited to goods that are destined for vicarious consumption only. In the latter case the sanctuary and the sacred apparatus are so contrived as not to enhance the comfort or fullness of life of the vicarious consumer, or at any rate not to convey the impression that the end of their consumption is the consumer's comfort. For the end of vicarious consumption is to enhance not the fullness of life of the consumer, but the pecuniary repute of the master for whose behoof the consumption takes place. Therefore, priestly vestments are notoriously expensive, ornate, and inconvenient." And in the cults where the priestly servitor of the divinity is not conceived to serve him in the capacity of consort, they are of an austere, comfortless fashion. And such it is felt that they should be. It is not only in establishing a devout standard of decent expensiveness that the principle of waste invades the domain of the canons of ritual serviceability. It touches the ways as well as the means, and draws on vicarious leisure as well as on vicarious consumption priestly demeanour at its best is aloof leisurely perfunctory and uncontaminated with suggestions of sensuous pleasure this holds true in different degrees of course for the different cults and denominations but in the priestly life of all the anthropomorphic cults the marks of a vicarious consumption of time are visible the same pervading canon of vicarious leisure is also visibly present in the exterior details of devout observances, and need only be pointed out in order to become obvious to all beholders. All ritual has a notable tendency to reduce itself to a rehearsal of formulas. This development of formula is most noticeable in the mature cults, which have at the same time a more austere, ornate, and severe priestly life and garb but it is perceptible also in the forms and methods of worship of the newer and fresher sects, whose tastes in respect of priests, vestments, and sanctuaries are less exacting. The rehearsal of the service, the term service carries a suggestion significant for the point in question, grows more perfunctory as the cult gains in age and consistency, and this perfunctoriness of the rehearsal is very pleasing to the correct devout taste. And with a good reason, for the fact of its being perfunctory goes to say pointedly that the master for whom it is performed is exalted above the vulgar need of actually proficuous service on the part of his servants. They are unprofitable servants, and there is an honorific implication for their master in their remaining unprofitable. It is needless to point out the close analogy at this point between the priestly office and the office of the footman. It is pleasing to our sense of what is fitting in these matters in either case to recognize in the obvious perfunctoriness of the service that it is a pro forma execution only. There should be no show of agility or of dexterous manipulation in the execution of the priestly office, such as might suggest a capacity for turning off the work. In all this there is, of course, an obvious implication as to the temperament, tastes, propensities and habits of life imputed to the divinity by worshippers who live under the tradition of these pecuniary canons of reputability. Through its pervading men's habits of thought, the principles of conspicuous waste has coloured the worshipper's notions of the divinity and of the relation in which the human subject stands to him. It is, of course, in the more naive cults that this suffusion of pecuniary beauty is most patent, but it is visible throughout. All peoples, at whatever stage of culture or degree of enlightenment, are fain to eke out a sensibly scant degree of authentic formation regarding the personality and habitual surroundings of their divinities. In so calling in the aid of fancy to enrich and fill in their picture of the divinity's presence and manner of life they habitually impute to him, such traits as go to make up their ideal of a worthy man. And in seeking communion with the divinity, the ways and means of approach are assimilated as nearly as may be to the divine ideal that is in men's minds at the time, it is felt that the divine presence is entered with the best grace and with the best effect according to certain accepted methods and with the accompaniment of certain material circumstances which in popular apprehension are peculiarly consonant with the divine nature this popularly accepted ideal of the bearing and paraphernalia adequate to such occasions of communion is, of course, to a good extent shaped by the popular apprehension of what is intrinsically worthy and beautiful in human carriage and surroundings on all occasions of dignified intercourse. It would on this account be misleading to attempt an analysis of devout demeanour by referring all evidence of the presence of a pecuniary standard of reputability back directly and boldly to the underlying norm of pecuniary emulation. So it would also be misleading to ascribe to the divinity, as popularly conceived, a jealous regard for his pecuniary standing, and a habit of avoiding and condemning squalid situations and surroundings, simply because they are under grade in the pecuniary respect. And still, after all allowance has been made, it appears that the canons of pecuniary reputability do, directly or indirectly, materially affect our notions of the attributes of divinity, as well as our notions of what are the fit and adequate manner and circumstances of divine communion. It is felt that the divinity must be of a peculiarly serene and leisurely habit of life. And whenever his local habitation is pictured in poetic imagery, for edification or in appeal to the devout fancy, the devout word-painter, as a matter of course, brings out before his auditor's imagination a throne with a profusion of the insignia of opulence and power, and surrounded by a great number of servitors." In the common run of such presentations of the celestial abodes, the office of this corps of servants is a vicarious leisure, their time and efforts being in a great measure taken up with an industrially unproductive rehearsal of the meritorious characteristics and exploits of the divinity, while the background of the presentation is filled with the shimmer of the precious metals and of the more expensive varieties of precious stones." It is only in the crasser expressions of devout fancy that this intrusion of pecuniary canons into the devout ideals reaches such an extreme. An extreme case occurs in the devout imagery of the negro population of the south. Their word painters are unable to descend to anything cheaper than gold, so that in this case the insistence on pecuniary beauty gives a startling effect in yellow, such as would be unbearable to a soberer taste. Still... There is probably no cult in which ideals of pecuniary merit have not been called in to supplement the ideals of ceremonial adequacy that guide men's conception of what is right in the matter of sacred apparatus. End of first part of chapter 6